We are here. We're happy. And today we are honored to have guest author Angeline Bully here with us. I'm Heather Shoemaker. And with me today are Kelly J. Baptist and Patrick Flory Scott. Welcome and Miigwech. Thank you for being with us. Oh, uh, bonjour, Anine. It's a pleasure to be here and thank you for inviting me. Right. Angeline is a fellow Michigan author and a native author of the new young adult novel, Firekeeper's Daughter. And I must say the world is thrilled to have your book. (laughs) Uh, Do you mind just introducing yourself briefly and telling just a bit about your book for people who don't know? Sure. Uh, I'm Angeline Bully, uh, pretty much a lifelong Michigan resident. And My dad is Ojibwe uh, from Sault Ste. Marie, Sugar Island uh, in the Upper Peninsula. And my mom's not native. And um, let's see, Uh, even though we grew up downstate, uh, we would go back to Sault Ste. Marie every summer, visit with our grandparents and cousins and, um, you know, just be part of the tribal community. And then my career, I've always worked for Native tribes, and um, I ended up in Washington, D.C., working for the U.S. Department of Education, but I always would get up early and work on this book that I had an idea when I was 18, and finally, when I was 44, I decided to start writing it, and it took 10 years to write, but once I was ready to get an agent and see about it getting published, things took off pretty quickly. So, uh, so it's the opposite of hurry up and wait. <laughs> it was a long time in coming, but then it just took took off. So, um, I'm a full time author now, and I live in Michigan, a block away from my parents, Aww. and um, I'm just enjoying being back in Michigan. Wonderful. Thank you so much for that, that introduction. And, you know, it's funny, people in the audience usually always ask, how long does it take to write a book? And you have various answers. I mean, one of them is 10 years when you started to sit down and write, but the other one really is all your life. Yeah, definitely. You know, that idea came to me when I was 18 and it always just stayed, that question always stayed in the back of my mind. Um, My book started, the story started with a friend who went to a different high school and senior year, she told me about a new guy. She thought he might be my type. It turned out that he wasn't. Uh, He didn't play sports and um, he hung out with all the partiers. And um, at the end of the school year, she said that there had been a huge drug bust and it turned out that the new guy was an undercover cop. And so, um, I just remembered thinking, oh, what if we would have met and what if we would have liked each other? And then really it was, wait, what if it wasn't that he liked me, but that he needed my help? And so the idea that stayed with me since 18 was why would some undercover investigation need the help of an ordinary Ojibwe girl? And yeah, with my career working uh, for different tribes in Michigan, um, I started working out the puzzle pieces. So even though I didn't start writing until I was 44, that idea was always there, that question of why would this investigation happen? 
And um, once I figured out that it would be a federal investigation uh, involving something that uh, had a cultural component to it, uh, and if she was great in chemistry and knew her language and uh, cultural teachings, she actually would be the ideal person Mm. uh, to be part of an undercover investigation. Yeah. So I love how you're working on the ideas of the book, even when you're you're not actively writing, which I, I think we all do. You know, I think I've heard many people, maybe you yourself included, call this an indigenous Nancy Drew story. But I've read some Nancy Drew and I would say this is a lot more complex <laughs> than than that mm-hmm. typical mystery story. As Patrick was telling me earlier, there's a lot to chew on here. Um, Kelly, did you want to just start with some of your your reactions? I definitely um, think we have a lot in common in terms of almost whole life, uh, born and raised here in Michigan, but I have not yet made it up to the UP. Um, However, I love stories where the setting fills almost as much as a character as your characters do. And so that's what I found to be in, in your story. So I'm just curious to know, with you being from the area and um, having visited Sugar Island, what was that like to create or recreate in your mind what you knew the setting to be? And do you feel that stories are stronger when you're writing about a place where you've lived? Um, Just kind of talk to us about how you incorporated the setting so strongly and vividly into this story. Sure. I really did think of Donis's background as kind of embodying these major influences of Sault Ste. Marie and Sugar Island. So, you know, that Donis, uh, her father is Ojibwe from Sugar Island and her, uh, on her mom's side, uh, she references, you know, her grandmother coming from French fur traders and there are names, uh, last names, uh, streets named after them. And her uh, grandfather being one of the, uh, from the families, the Italian stonecutters that emigrated to build the Sioux locks. Um, and so I liked that of Donis just kind of um, embodying all of these, you know, all the major influences. And uh, yeah, I, I knew I wanted to set the story in my own tribal community But I also knew that I wanted to fictionalize the tribe and take some creative license with it, too, because I didn't know how to write a fictional story about a real place without it feeling like a documentary. Mm. Um, And and the whole thing of, am I authorized to tell a story about my tribe? And I just, I'm glad that I fictionalized uh, the tribe so that I could talk about issues that I wanted to talk about. Um, Blood quantum and per capita were two things that my tribe doesn't do, but I really wanted to talk about that in in the story. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's one thing your story totally does is get into these, you know, the grittier side, the warts and all. Um, uh, I have, haven't, you don't see a lot of books that will get into ideas about tribal enrollment and per capita and and violence against uh, Native women, which is uh, one of the highest in in the whole um, North America. Do you want to talk about your decision to bring in a lot of these kind of tricky issues? Well, I just, to me, I wanted to tell a truthful story about life that, you know, a young Ojibwe, a young woman, would be facing 
and you know all of these issues about identity um about grief and about justice these are you know all things that um you know people people experience and so um yeah i i felt it was important to tell a truthful story and but yet not dwell in trauma um i i like to say that i i wrote about trauma but i didn't write a tragedy mm-hmm. because i i wanted to balance uh these truth harsh truths about uh my tribal community with wonderful things about my community um and adding you know. the humor in for example there's a character granny june who names her dog tribal council so she can yell <laughs> at the tribal council i mean yeah. I, right there we understand that there can be some issues between um members and and the council but because it's done with such a touch of humor it it just eases that yeah yeah and humor is a really great way to just kind of ease into certain things or uh lighten you know lighten the mood i I had a question it's you you've kind of already touched on it, but I'd like to see if there's more there um in terms of all of her dualities and it's more than dualities but um being uh european American and indigenous being a jock uh we're talking about donis the the protagonist in your book mm-hmm. being a jock and kind of a science geek having uh, a wealthy background and a not wealthy background and you've created a character who's able to negotiate all these different worlds and is that something that you feel personally that's part of you that you brought to this story or What's what strength does does Donis's ability to code switch and negotiate all these different worlds uh, give to the story and give to her character? I've been asked too, like, why didn't I write my story specifically for the adult market? Like, because yeah. I sat on having it be young adult, and and I for this ties into your question because young adult, uh, so many themes are about. Um, Finding, claiming your identity and finding your place in the world um, or in your community. And so that firmly rooted the story I wanted to tell in young adult. Um, and with Donis, yeah, like now we could put words to things like code sw- switching. Um, but, you know, I, I could relate to some degree because I am, you know, a light-skinned Ojibwe person and I've heard a lifetime of, oh, you don't look Indian or, oh, but you're not one of those Indians because you're, you know, and you're, you didn't grow up on the reservation or because of this or that. And I just think it's really powerful when a young person claims their identity. Um, and then from my experience, you know, claiming your indigenous identity and realizing that there is no agreement uh, on what makes an indigenous person. Um, and, and so it's really something that you claim for yourself. And once you do that, I, I think you find a certain peace and, um, you know, yeah. And so I, I really felt it was important for Donis to, you know, that she learns early on that she feels she has to separate um, these different parts of her, mm-hmm. uh, you know, her wealthy uh, grandparents didn't care for Native people. You know, and she she just gets that message early on that there's times when it's 
safe to be, um, you know, where she has to be a Fontaine and other times where she can be a firekeeper. And really her strength is when she realizes that melding all of the parts of her identity, accepting all of it, that's when she comes into her uh, power. Mm-hmm. It's so that that piece is so I, I just really get emotional when I think about it and emotional when I read that, because thinking about kids who feel like to make it through in one place, they have to hide something, another part of themselves. Uh, and for her to just say, no, you know, I am I am this person. And she is such a strong, such a powerful, beautiful character that I think we kind of haven't seen before. And um, there's so much vulnerability there all at the same all at the same time that I think adds to that power. And now I'm just gushing about your book and your story as opposed to asking a question. But, but I just that's important it so too. Much. Yeah, <laughs> it's important yeah. to do that too. <laughs> so um, one of the thing, one of the strengths that I saw is the way you use language, not just the English language, but Anishinaabe language, and how much you put into the text of the book. And to me, that is fantastic. I I kind of wonder if you got some pushback here or there. Uh, about how much that uh, had the native language in the text. I mean, these are big, long words for a lot of people. Um, they're not used to seeing them, most most of the readers. And where, where I live in northern Michigan, most of the native adults um, really only speak English in some basic words in Anishinaabe, probably because of legacy of boarding schools. Um, so mm-hmm. I'm wondering two parts questions of, you know, your decision making to add so much of the native language and also whether you had some learning to do, whether you were raised bilingual or whether your learning is part of the language revitalization going on right now as well. Excellent questions. So my father uh, grew up fluent in the language. Uh, he was raised by his great grandmother. Mm. So and she only spoke uh Anishinaabe Moen. She only spoke our language, you know, that language. Um, my dad decided not to teach us. I think he had a really hard upbringing in Sault Ste. Marie. It was a difficult place to be a na- native. Um, my dad is a dark-skinned native. And so he's visibly, you know, people, um, I think, I, I think that he had some hard times and So I know that he made a loving decision in not teaching us the language that he later regretted. But, you know, um, when you when you know better, you do better. And at the time, he he thought he was doing the best uh, thing for us. So I I can um, read it. I can listen to it, but I'm so not comfortable speaking it. Um, I'm, you know, that generation that my kids went to a tribal school for preschool and they learned uh, Ojibwe language. And, mm. um, and my dad was like, oh, that, you know, keep them in the, keep them with the language. And, and there was that, well, I wish I had it to give them. Right. Um, and, and so that's why I feel so strongly about language mm. revitalization. I, I don't know that I would say I got pushback. My, publisher did want me to do a glossary and I, uh, I did not want to do a glossary. Um, I felt like if I did a 
good job writing and have, well, Donna's grew up with the language. So, and the story is written first person point of view, present tense. So the words on the page are her thoughts as they're happening. And so of course the language is going to be just organic to who she is and how she sees the world. And I thought if I did a good job writing that the reader would be able to glean the contact from the context, uh, what the words meant. Right. And I will say that the audio book, uh, we worked really hard on the pronunciations. Um, so I did have a lot of help. So I had help from my cousin, Deb Pine. Um, I had help from Michelle uh, Wellman-Teeple, who is Odawa and uh, teaches at Bay Mills Community College in, in Brimley. Um, and then too, uh, Dr. Margaret Noden, and she's a professor at University of Wisconsin, Milwaukee. And she is the one that helped me to standardize all the spellings. Ah. My dad spells things phonetically. And she really made the case for using what's called the double vowel system in the Ojibwe language. Um, it kind of standardizes the spellings and pronunciations. And she, she really made a case that the book could be a supplemental text in Ojibwe language courses. Wow. Um, that's so by, you know, that it would be easier to do that uh, if it were using the double vowel system. So, mm. but my dad's still mad about that. <laughs> he thinks I should have done the phonetics. <laughs> um, never going to win. <laughs> no. Well, that's fantastic. I think it adds so much richness to your book. And also, as you say, the, the power of the revitalization of language um, is it's, it's part of your whole book is the strength of people of culture and of women in particular. Um, mm-hmm. I think some of the women characters I, I like best are Aunt Teddy. Um, and in fact, your main character, Donna, sometimes turns to her aunt for all sorts of things, but also for the specific meanings of a native word to make sure she's got yeah. it right, because Donna is still learning the language. Right, right. Mm-hmm. As fellow authors, we're really eager to know about some of your writing as well, writing process. Yeah, I, I did have a, a question. Again, we've already sort of touched on this, but I thought I'd go a little bit deeper. And that is between you being 18 and coming up with the nugget of this idea and you starting in earnest um, later on, you had a family and you had an amazing career. And I just, I wonder about what, skills and what life experiences and what knowledge you picked up along the way that made uh, you as a writer ready to write this book and and how it was maybe different. You could speculate how it'd be different than if you had started when you were 18, when you originally got the idea. Right. And I'm so glad that draft one never saw, I think my sister was the only one that ever saw draft one. So I'm so glad that early drafts of the manuscript never, I, I, you know, got published. Uh, it was not ready. When did those drafts happen? Those early, when did the early, early drafts happen that you're talking about? Oh, I think I finished my first draft, uh, like in my first year of writing it. Oh, so, okay. wow, yeah. Um, And I just, I was always honest with myself. And when I read it, I would know that it wasn't, you know, it wasn't ready. Um, I needed work with pacing and, um, you know, how learning how to tell a story and dialogue and all of that. So, 
Um, I would, you know, read and try to teach myself as much as possible. And then I would go back at it and try, you know, do another, uh, start another draft. Mm. Uh, Life happens, three kids. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, one of the things too, is that I worked in three different Michigan uh, tribal communities. And I think that was so helpful for me so that I could write about a tribal community and not have it be specific to one, Mm. but to um, really see how some of these issues play out in different communities. And each tribe has their own history, um, their own, you know, governance and seeing the different ways of how that impacts how tribes address social issues. um, That was really interesting. That was like a really good preparation for the, for the book and different people I met and, um, teens. I always, uh, worked with, uh, teens and, uh, yeah. Mm. Yeah. That probably helped you fictionalize your, your tribe that you used in the book because you weren't just drawing from the one you knew best. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Definitely. And when I started writing, my two boys were teens and my daughter was a preteen and um, our house was kind of the little social gathering place for my sons and uh, boys, when they don't know that you're listening, um, (laughs) the things that they talk about uh, and how they talk about things. I think that was also very good, um, informed my writing. like using life as your your classroom, your university, and being able to glean from whoever's around you, whatever's around you, yeah. you're going to see yourself in the story. Be careful. <laughs> <laughs> Don't tick me off. Don't tick I me always, off. <laughs> I always need a good villain. That's it. Are there people that have come up to you and said, I'm, I'm so-and-so in the story. I know I am. Has anyone tried to Um, I, I've had some people who are, you know, who are like, you know, is this really so-and-so? But no, I was inspired by people, but not, um, you know, I always took creative license with characters that I was developing so that none of them were, um, you know, an actual person. Right. So to inspire some of the listeners who also are interested in maybe starting their own books, um, I know I started getting up early to write my first book. So can you explain your determination um, that you're going to write this book and what it took, what time of day you got up and, you know, during having a full-time job after that? Sure. Um, So I would, I started getting up like an hour before my kids would, and I would go to the family computer and I, I would uh, browse Facebook and, you know, drink coffee and just, Um, and then I really started to enjoy that morning, that quiet. And when I started writing the book, that was my best time for writing. Um, and once I really got into the story, I loved waking up with story that in between sleep and wake, um, I would get ideas. I would get like a perfect line of dialogue or the answer to a question about plot that I was struggling with, the answer would come to me during that time. And so I honored that. And I was so excited uh, to be able to write when I was fresh um, 
in the morning because, you know, my job and kids and everything, I just, I was too exhausted by the end of the day. And, (laughs) And I started to get really protective of my writing time. And I wanted to give my best energy my most creative energy to that. Mm. So when I moved to Washington, D.C., I worked at U.S. Department of Education and, you know, those were 10 hour days. And so I would get up at four in the morning and I knew I could write for, you know, three and a half hours and then I had to get ready for work and I would look at the clock and I knew, okay, I have to stop at this time so that I can be at my desk in D.C., um, by this time. And in a way, it, I think I was actually more productive mm-hmm. with that schedule than I am now as a full-time author, because I'm having a hard time getting back into that morning groove. Um, deadlines can be helpful, whether they're commuting deadlines or other. Yeah. Yeah. And I think too, like just my my training as a writer was as a grant writer. And so always pushing those deadlines. Um, so yeah, I, I think that adrenaline that I've got to get it done now um, was helpful for me. Yeah. I love that. That's further inspiration. My uh, booksman crew knows that that's been my struggle. Um, and like you, I feel like that is probably the best time because you're exhausted at the end of the day. And that morning yep. it's quiet. There is no interruptions. They are snoring and sleeping in their beds. And so I'm happy to report that I have started that Booksman crew. I have started getting up an hour um, and I'd love to push it back or push it earlier um, as I'm able. I'd love to be in the bed at 8 p.m. That would be awesome, too. So <laughs> <laughs> that's excellent advice. Yep. Something funny happened to me in my mid 40s. Um I I was never a morning person, but all of a sudden just getting up before the kids was kind of special. It was my treat. And there are certain foods that I never liked that all of a sudden I was like, oh, I think I do love avocados and, (laughs) um, you know, different things. So I think sometimes our bodies go through these changes Mm -hmm. and that was like probably one of the best things for me was discovering that. I do like mornings mm-hmm. and I actually feel fresh, you know, the most creative I am in in the morning. Yeah. I know exactly what you mean. Cause when I did that, getting up at 5am for a couple of years, I was in such a good mood having been immersed in my story world that I greeted my children with great big good mornings and hugs and they were happy. I wasn't all groggy yes. and I was so full of story that it just carried the mood through the day. So Mm-hmm. I wanted to ask about your editor relationship. Um, I've I, I've met Tiffany Liao a little bit, and I, I was struck by something you put in the acknowledgement pages of your book about how when you first started working with her as your editor, that you had, I guess, a, a, some scary conversations about what what this book could be. And together, you'd obviously worked on it yourself for years, but what kind of impacts did the editor relationship have on your story? Well, I was in the wonderful, fortunate position. Uh, There were 12 editors that were interested in the uh, publishing rights for my book. And so I had uh, phone calls with all 12 and um, trying to get a feel for what their editorial vision was um, 
you know, whether or not they saw the book as a lead title, um, how they communicate. Uh, so yeah, it was, um, I, I really tried to do my, you know, due diligence and try to find the right editor for me. And Tiff, she scared, she scared <laughs> the crap out of me on that first one hour phone call because she talked so much and her editorial vision, it was like, there were other editors that were kind of like, oh, I think we could just do a minor uh, revision on a couple of things. And then I think we're good to go. And she was basically like wanting to dismantle it and rebuild it stronger. And I was like, I am scared, but I'm excited. And it was like, okay, if I'm going to do this, I'm, I'm, I'm on board for this. I'm going to just go full throttle with it. And so, yeah, she, um, she gave me the best advice during that phone call too, because I was kind of stuck of too many chapters leading up to the inciting incident. And I, I was like, but I have to introduce all the hockey players. I got to introduce this character that, and she goes, no, no, no. Those are secondary characters. Act one needs to be about your primary characters Mm -hmm. and your secondary characters are going to be so much more memorable as suspects (laughs) in act two. And that was like the heavens opened up and the world made sense to me. And it was like, that is exactly the revision that I, Mm -hmm. you know, needed to tackle Mm -hmm. was, was that. So Tiff was just a dream to work with. We had the most incredible conversations. She really, um, yeah, her input into the story and how I wrote about difficult topics. Mm -hmm. She really thought, she said, think about the younger end of the readers. And what if this is the first time they're ever reading about sexual assault? What if this is the first time they're ever reading about, um, you know, the death of a of a, a peer. Um, and, and so that really, you know, her advice about, you know, give the reader some breathing room, um, you know, maybe there needs to be another, a secondary character that can mirror that experience and have a positive outcome so that, you know, just things like that, that I hadn't thought about, but made a lot of sense because when you are writing young adult or children's uh, literature, you have a responsibility to that reader that is different than if you're writing for adults. Mm. That is fantastic insight. And um, I think, I think you and Tiff are absolutely right on that, that, you know, especially your book runs the gamut of so many topics that may indeed be the first time, not just culturally, but all the, uh, you know, some, some of the difficult topics. So. That's fantastic. Well, I can announce now. So Tiff Leal left Holt, um, Henry Holt Books for Young Readers. Uh, she is part of a startup called Zando Publishing, mm-hmm. and it was an incredible career opportunity for her. So um, she is she is not my editor anymore, but she is my friend. Aww. And um I'm really happy to announce that my new editor at Holt is Jess Harold, mm-hmm. and Jess uh, came from Scholastic and has some phenomenal editing experience. And she's been with uh, Macmillan for a couple of months now, and I'm just thrilled that she's going that I get to work with her on book two. Excellent. 
That begs the question. Um, (laughs) Can you give us a little hint of book two? Oh, yes, definitely. So if book one was Indigenous Nancy Drew or Indigenous Veronica Mars, (laughs) uh, book two is Indigenous Lara Croft. But instead of raiding tombs, the main character uh, is reclaiming ancestors um, and cultural items mm. from museums and private collectors. To wow. I love it. And I love one of her heists it. goes very badly. Ooh. So, Wow, that's so mm-hmm. exciting. But there's also, again, so much to learn, so much the information and history that you're going to be connecting your young oh, readers yeah. to. History that, you know, we're not getting in school. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And that just begs the question. I always wonder as an author is which parts of the book did you have to research the most? In other words, did you have to ask for help with the language? Did you have to research? What is it like to do an undercover cop operation? Which parts (laughs) did you have to really get to know yourself? Because obviously none of us know everything about the stories we tell. Yeah, really, you know, the law enforcement um, and then methamphetamines, um, you know, learning about that. And uh, I did learn from the state police how to make meth and how to identify clandestine meth labs. Mm. So I was able to attend a uh, workshop at the Michigan State Police Academy and um I wouldn't be able to, if you put me in a room with ingredients, I would not know what I was doing, but, um, (laughs) but it was good for, (laughs) yeah. (laughs) Um, just so you know, but, um, just the whole, uh, being exposed to the paraphernalia and the, you know, methods of production that helped me to write so that maybe, you know, the, the few readers that might know that world would be like, ah, she got that right. Mm-hmm. And that I think that's why you do exhaustive research is for that person who's like, mm, okay. So I had one of my best sources was this uh, retired FBI agent and he's native and um, he answered any question I had. And he was a wonderful resource. Wow. How did you get connected with him? Um, a mutual friend when I lived in Washington, D.C., I was telling her about the this book that I was working on. And she said, oh, you should meet Walt Lamar. And I was like, I've heard his name. Who is he? And she, he's a retired FBI agent. He was at Waco. He was at Oklahoma wow. City. Like he, you know, he needs to write a book. Mm. Right. And <laughs> I've, you know, encouraged him because he just has so many stories about you know life as a FBI agent and and being native mm. and I'm curious too about the stages that you were able to say you know maybe you don't even have a publisher yet you're on draft something but it's you know it's not finished what um how did you just go up to the Michigan police and say hey I need to learn how to make meth because I'm writing a book about it <laughs> <laughs> just the book oh, <laughs> yeah just the book <laughs> yeah so I I was living in Sault Ste. Marie and I was on some committee, some, I don't know, some committee in town. And I went to this one dinner and I was seated next to this uh, man who was a professor of uh, at Lake State, he, professor of, I think, the um, police, the law enforcement uh, degree that Lake State has. And um, I was telling him about, you know, the book and 
he was really into it. He was like, oh, a chemistry teacher, like students' fingerprints would be on all, you know, like, oh, that would be good. And then and then he said um, that he had contacts still. He was a former um, state trooper. And um, if I was interested, if he could arrange for it, would I want to go to a workshop at the academy and about meth? And I was like, well, of course I would. <laughs> so, yeah, that was like a, a, a day vaca- um, a day of vacation that I took that was so worth it. it there's no way to, yeah. That's an interesting what I did on my vacation. Yeah, I burned eight hours of, of vacation time on, on that. And it was worth every worth every second of it. It is worth it. And I think what you said about the exhaustive research mattering, um, even if it doesn't to the masses, that select group. Um, I often think of the the animated film Finding Nemo, and there's a scene where they're at the dentist. And they're using all of these terms that normal people do not understand. And I always think there's a parent dentist watching with their child and they are getting into it because they're speaking their language. And uh, that's yep. that's what makes it count. So thank you for doing mm-hmm. that that research for this one and, and for your next one. Um, it really, it really does matter. And speaking of another similarity that we have is a connection to we need diverse books. And I was wondering if you could share with us a little bit of how that mentorship um, helped you, inspired you, uh, maybe even opened some doors for you in terms of your writing career, if you could, because it did it for me. And so I just wanted to hear from you how how that impacted you. Yes. Um, We Need Diverse Books is such a great organization, a national nonprofit organization, um, because every kid deserves to be seen in a book. And... I had heard about the mentorship program and I applied in 2017 and I didn't, I didn't get picked for it. Um, But I felt like I was close. There was something about that rejection letter that made me feel like I, I was really close. And so um, I, I worked for a year on improving the, my latest draft and I applied again and I could see my growth Mm. um, when I did you submit 15 pages of your manuscript um, as part of the application process. And I could see the growth as a writer in that, that year time that I had, had done. And I was uh, selected for it. I was one of three young adult emerging authors that would be paired with a published author. And I was paired with Francisco Stork. And so it was supposed to be a year-long mentorship, but really uh, for us, it was more like maybe six months. Um, he read my manuscript and then he gave me critique in sections like each act. And I had like a four act story. Um, and he gave really good feedback that my beta readers and critique partners hadn't touched on. And when he got done, he said, I think you really have something here. And he um, said, I mentioned you to my agent, Faye Bender, (laughs) and she's, you know, interested in reading your manuscript if you'd like to send it to her. And that's part of the mentorship thing is that you're not supposed to ask for a leg up like that. You are not supposed Mm -hmm. to. And so when he offered it, Mm -hmm. I was like, wow, okay. Um, And so I did an exhaustive search for an agent and 
Um, I was fortunate to have multiple offers of representation. And in the end, Faye Bender was the best um, choice for me. And so Francisco and I share an agent now. I guess they were like agent siblings or whatever. <laughs> yeah. There's got to be um, a name for that, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and and so just, you know, that that mentorship, it changed my, it just set me on my way. Um, that critical connection with Francisco that led to me getting my agent and then I do believe that being um, one of the mentors or mentees from We Need Diverse Books, I, I think that helped with editors reading the submission from, Faye, you know, that Faye would send. I, I think those kind of, um, that kind of credential or that kind of mm-hmm. feather in your cap, so to speak, maybe puts your manuscript to the top of their list, you know, to be read. Um, and, and so, yeah, definitely got me some attention. Now that your book has, you know, come out to such great acclaim and had such great success and you're on to your next book, people are unofficially, kids are going to unofficially see you as a mentor when they read your (laughs) book, but are you, um, in a, in a place to, to take on that mentorship role now? Is that beginning to happen? Um, not yet, just because of the deadlines. Yeah. The deadlines. I don't have 10 Been years. on a fast track here. Too. I, I have like 10 months. Yeah. Wow. Um, and, and so um, I have mentored an, a writer previous to me getting a book deal. Um, I mentored someone and it was a lot of work. And so I just, I'm not ready to... Um, make that kind of a commitment. Um, but I, I think once I'm done with book two, um, I hope that I can give back to, we need diverse books and, and be a mentor. Um, so. That's great. Fantastic. Well, we also wanted to touch on the readers, not just the writing process. So we have some questions about, you know, your books uh, interaction and impact on, on readers. Kelly, did you have a question on that? Yeah, so mine for that is, have you heard a lot from Native youth who have read this and have been able to be impacted? What has their response been to you about really being able to see themselves, as you said, at the importance of that, um, they're able to see themselves in this story? Have you been able to get a lot of feedback from them in particular? I've seen, uh, I've talked with some teens at... um, some book signings that I've done in Michigan. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm just amazed like that they, um, they get so excited and tongue tied. Uh, <laughs> and that's, it's pretty cool to see, you know, that they're um, excited about just even being in the same room with me. And <laughs> that's bizarre. Mm-hmm. That's it's, it's a different experience. Yeah. Um, I think Native um, women, particularly from Michigan, mm-hmm. um, that I've connected with at different reader um, book events, when they let me know how much the book meant to them. And there have been a couple of women that they can't speak mm-hmm. about, like they get too choked up. Mm-hmm. and But just 
there's that connection when we look at each other and, and I, I know, and I'm just so thankful for those reactions too. So, for sure. yeah. And then I just love when people are like, oh, my grandma read your book. Oh, she told me to, she wants to know what happened to so you know, <laughs> did so-and-so get what he was, what was coming to him or, you know. So. so it's a book for grandmothers, not just teenagers. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. absolutely. Are there any other Native uh, writers that you would like to recommend that maybe our listeners haven't been introduced to, especially for youth? Sure. Uh, Darcy Little Badger, um, her book, Alatsui, is just beautiful. It's, it's like um, a teen trying to find out what really happened to her cousin who passed, but there's like her ghost dog. Um, and then there's vampires and then there's cultural teachings. And it's just this beautiful uh, novel. So Darcy Little Badger, I just adore her. Um, Cherie Dimeline is one of my favorite authors and she wrote the Merrill Thieves. Oh, I've read that. Um, and, and that is like a must read um, yeah. And then this is the best perk about being an author that no one ever told me about is, um, she, we, we did an event together and really hit it off. And so her agent contacted my agent to see if I wanted to read the advanced copy of oh, cool. her book. That's a sequel to the Marrow Thieves. And I did a book blurb for it Mm -hmm. so like the little quote on the cover and that and so I got to read the book before anybody else and it's it's amazing it's coming out this month I believe and um yeah that is a good perk (laughs) yeah that's very good perk so I'm curious because when I met you um, at Horizon Books, uh, it had been just a few days before that you had had the unusual experience of taking your New York City editor and your New York City agent to a powwow, I think, on Sugar mm-hmm. Island or in the Sioux. Yes. And do you have any stories to share from that? Because the oh idea of God. New York City and the UP <laughs> clashing or interacting is just mind boggling. Yep. Well, they had never been to the Upper Peninsula before. They'd never been to a powwow. And, you know, I just, I don't know, I think we were on some group call and I said something about the powwow and what date it was. And they were like, we want to go. We want to go. And so they came like a day early. So the powwow is um, Saturday and Sunday and they came on Thursday night. So on Friday, I took them all over uh, St. Marie and Sugar Island and I showed them different locations from the book and um, they just loved it. And I was like, this is the scene where, you know, Donis punches Jamie and this is where this happened. And this is, and they just were amazed at all of it. And then to go to the powwow and that powwow is just the most wonderful. It feels like a family reunion. And my dad is there with his cousins and all they do is um, cook and eat and tell stories and laugh and then like repeat. And so, um, yeah. So my dad, oh my gosh, the funniest thing happened. So uh, my publisher, um, they gave me uh, 40 books that I could gift uh, at the powwow. Cause I felt weird. Like I don't want to get into sales mm. 
So we did a book signing on each day of the powwow. And so, you know, I would sign people's books and if they would be like, well, I don't have a book. Um, could I buy one from you? And I would be like, here, this is from my publisher. Um, so I went to sign it on the title page where I normally sign. And the person goes, no, no, sign it in the back next to your dad's signature. Oh. And I was like, wait, my dad's signing it? <laughs> and he was signing it, the old firekeeper. I and love that story. And his name. So now everyone wants copies that are signed by my dad. Yeah. And so yeah, that's my my dad was stealing my thunder, and he he just was having such a good time with it. Oh, that's, that's awesome. really living up to the title of your book. Now you're truly Firekeeper's <laughs> I daughter. I truly am Firekeeper's daughter. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for sharing your stories and being with us. Um, Thank you. Yeah, we're we're um, all loving your your book and rereading it and passing it on as a recommendation to people. And so. pumped up for the second one now. It oh, just sounds yes. terrific. Yeah, yeah. The second one, it's not a traditional sequel. Um, it's set in a different year and uh, has a different main character, but you'll see familiar faces oh, cool, uh, for cool. sure. Cool. And you'll learn some things that have happened since uh since the first book Very excellent cool. all right thank you so much for being on book smitten with us this has been another episode of book smitten thanks to our show's producers josie and Corey schneider and special thanks to our very special guest angeline bully go get a copy of firekeeper's daughter and see you on the bookshelf yay bye bye bye, bye. <laughs>